Uh, there's been an absolutely uh, dramatic increase in the threat of world war, of thermonuclear war. And in the same time period, there has been a dramatic increase in the potential for a new paradigm, a paradigm based on mutual economic development, based on a future in which nation states act on the basis of the interest of the other. And that is something that our guest Hussein Askari, who's the, um, the Southwest Asia coordinator of the Schiller Institute, long time, long time associate and collaborator with Helga and Lyndon LaRouche. He has been in the middle of this and you'll see in some of the images I'm going to share, uh, cause I think I figured out how to do that. Thanks to Cade. Um, some of the pictures of Hussein over the past several years, taking the major publication that we, that the Schiller Institute put out of which he's one of the uh, core authors uh, called ex, uh, expanding the, uh, um, or the new, so, excuse me, the, um, the extending new the new Silk Road. Road. Yeah. I'm thinking of both of them, of course, yeah. but <laughs> go ahead. You, you please introduce the, the documents. Yeah. Well, I, uh, the, the the report or it's a book length report I and others like Jason Ross my colleague and others we worked on I was the project manager and the main author is called the extending the new Silk Road to West Asia and Africa uh, we also had of course the after the president of China uh, Xi Jinping announced the Belt and Road Initiative Helga Tsepp LaRouche, the chairwoman of the Schiller Institute, commissioned a special report uh, which uh, was titled The New Silk Road Becomes the World Land Bridge because we could see the potential of the Belt and Road Initiative not being a Eurasian matter but being Eurasian, African and global which includes the Americas. Uh, but this was an update of a previous report uh, I had the honor as a younger man to work on uh, with Lyndon LaRouche and others in 1996. It was published in January 1997 and uh, was called uh, the Eurasian Land Bridge uh, Locomotive of Global, or the New Silk Road Locomotive for Global Economic uh, Revival. And that is the first known comprehensive study of what the new Silk Road would look like and what the potential it carries with it for global peace. But also it has all the, you know, the first maps of the new Silk Road, which people are throwing all over the place. We had the first maps published uh, in that report. So since then, since 1997, and LaRouche's work on the Eurasian land bridge goes all the way back to the fall of the Berlin Wall because the, the LaRouche's proposed the productive triangle. And this is a great irony because the, the idea of the new Silk Road comes from an American economist and a German uh, 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 leader, uh, Helga Zepp LaRouche, and the economist, of course, is her husband, Mr. Lyndon LaRouche, who is an American. It didn't come from China in the first place, uh, but the Chinese had the, the foresight and insight to adopt this as a strategy. But Lyndon LaRouche already uh, proposed the 
what was called the productive triangle strategy, which is that between Vienna, Berlin, and Paris, at the time in the early 1990s, you had the greatest concentration of industrial technology on the planet in a, in a relatively small area. And the idea was that to use that concentration to build development corridors towards Eastern Europe, Russia, and all the way to China. And then within these arms, you can involve all the nations in Central Asia, in West Asia, and of course, extension to Africa. So that's where, that's the genesis of the new Silk Road strategy. But in 1996, the Chinese government uh, took the initiative and held a, an international conference on the new Silk Road as a new strategy. And uh, Mrs. Helga Seplarush was invited to that conference. So since then, the Schiller Institute had, had, has had like maybe hundreds of seminars, dozens of international conferences on this theme because we believe and continue to believe that this is the way to establish peace among nations and move into a new paradigm away from British geopolitics, which have been destructive, that created two world wars, World War I, World War II, and then subsequently after the fall of the uh, Soviet Union, we have had all kinds of horrible wars, mostly concentrated in the region we call West Asia. Now, the reason we say West Asia or Southwest Asia and not the Middle East is because the term Middle East is fake. There is no place called Middle East. It's a concoction of the British East India Company from the 1850s because the British Empire wanted to, you know, and when you look at the world from London towards the East, you have the Near East, you have the Middle East, and you have the Far East. But this is the perspective from London. So Britain or the British Empire controlled most of these lands. And therefore, they needed to, to divide them geographically. But it's the most absurd thing because a person in Pakistan, I keep telling my friends in Pakistan and in India and in China, look, isn't it absurd that you call a place to your West, Middle East? So this <laughs> thing has to change because this is a virus and the British are very good at planting cultural viruses in the mind of people. The Middle East is such a virus. There is no such a place called Middle East. It is West Asia. Why? Because this is a scientific definition. If you look at the world from space, you will see the continents. And these continents are geographically defined. Okay, you have Eurasia, which is a, one big block. But since Asia is, has a, there's a cultural aspect to Asia. But you have East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, West Asia. And if you look at the FIFA, International Football Federation, you look for West Asia Football Federation. You have Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and the Gulf Cooperation Council, you know, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Oman, and Yemen. That's West Asia. But then you include Afghanistan is no man's land. Nobody knows if Afghanistan is Central Asia or South Asia where Pakistan is. So we have a region which is called Southwest Asia, 
which includes Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran and the rest. And then we have North Africa, Africa and North Africa, which is Egypt. Now, people want to put Egypt, Israel, and Turkey in the same bag, and they, they call this whole region Middle East. But we have West Asia, and we have Africa and North Africa. So that's the right thing to, to that's the right name for things. Hussein, I, I, re I really thank you for that um, introduction to the, the topic in a certain sense. And I would like to uh, take at this moment an opportunity to kind of lay out for people how we'll take the next hour and 45 minutes. We'll be going until 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, I'm Daniel Burke. People um, may be following uh, what we're doing on Twitter to uh, recruit increasingly people to the outlook of the LaRouche movement, the international LaRouche movement. I work with the Schiller Institute and the LaRouche organization. I'm also a former candidate for office in New Jersey. And Kay Levinson is my partner in this effort. Kay is also an associate of the LaRouche organization and the Schiller Institute. So you want to say hello? Hi, yeah. Uh, thanks, Daniel, and thank you, Hussein, uh, for for talking with us today. Um, I think you've, the 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 research and the work you put out, uh, especially with what's going on recently and even just the last day or two, is an absolutely uh, vital uh, uh, piece of the type of things we're working on right now. Um, and 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 yeah, no. Uh, uh, some of you might be familiar with a couple of the the spaces Daniel and I have even been either hosting or participating in. Uh, and uh, recently, especially with the crisis in Afghanistan, that this topic of, of development in 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 West Asia, uh, the, with the the institute that we we work with and the the what we try to put forward, it seems the absolutely uh, crucial fulcrum of the the direction of the the future of the global economy and even you could say humanity as such. And um, uh, on that note, I, I want to leave the most time here for for our guest Hussein, uh, and maybe to start things off a little bit. I, I'm wondering if you have comments about the news of just the last day about um, uh, Syria and Nicaragua coming to agreements with with China to to take part in the Belt and Road Initiative, and what does that um, mean maybe for um, uh, the uh, the area generally? Yeah. If if I could make a brief um, just um, interpolation here, good. The uh, so. As we go through these two hours, sometime around 2 p.m., we're going to stop for Q&A. And I really want to point people's people to the articles that we included. Uh, you can see it underneath my pinned tweet written by Hussein in Executive Intelligence Review over the past several years. Uh, one of them is titled Iran, Iraq, and the World in This Moment of Crisis. And that's from, uh, from 2020. That is from, what's the date on that? Anyway, it's in, it's in uh, 2020, January. It's January 10th. That was the uh, one week after uh, of course. General Suleimani was assassinated and Abu Mahdi Mohandis. Yeah. It, it's an extensive article on the situation, the background of and the situation of the Iraqi agreements with the Chinese government in an oil for development policy. Uh, that is everything to do with the Belt and Road Initiative. And it is in the context, um, as Hussein just indicated, of the grave increase in the threat of war. Oh, thank you, Kate. You figured out how to do that. I still haven't figured that out. And um, then in addition, you'll see an article that he wrote uh, in the middle of 2020, uh, July, 
on how Lebanon should join the new paradigm of the Belt and Road, but watch out for the war party. And you reminded me last night, Hussein, that this article you wrote with this grave warning uh, was actually uh, that warning bore out because only a month later, uh, we had the Beirut bombing. Uh, and then below that, we also have this uh, important transcript from comments given by Lyndon LaRouche in 2002 in Abu Dhabi uh, in, at a conference that was titled The Role of Oil and Gas in World Politics. So I want to really encourage people to turn to those as uh, areas to read more and understand more in depth. And then I'll make one more comment and I'll bring this stuff up again later. On Monday, the Schiller Institute is hosting a major international seminar um, called To Stop the Murder of Afghanistan. And um, I, will, uh, I will put that out as well uh, so that uh, over the course of this two hours so that people can register for it. I have a link for that, a specific one I want people to be able to use to register. And uh, we'll go over a couple of other things that the Schiller Institute are doing, including how to contribute to the Schiller Institute over the course of the discussion. So excuse me for, for getting interrupting that question that you posed, Kate. I'll, uh, I'll Hussein, yeah. please proceed however yeah. you'd like to. Great. Well, I, I was in, planning to uh, start with Iraq and go to Syria, Lebanon, uh, Afghanistan, and probably if we have time, we can discuss Kazakhstan and Yemen. Uh, but uh, answering your question, uh, uh, Kate, uh, yes, Syria announced, uh, it was uh, published in the news that Syria has now officially joined the Belt and Road by signing a memorandum of understanding with China. Uh, and uh, that makes the fact that all the countries, all the Arab countries, uh, including all the allies of the United States, <laughs> are now uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, of course, Nicaragua joined, I think, before New Year. And also before New Year, Eritrea and Guinea-Bissau, two African nations, joined the Belt and Road. Uh, a week after Blinken was in Africa, traveling around, warning people against China. Now, almost all African nations have joined the Belt and Road, except for four smaller landlocked nations. That's not wise to be outside the Belt and Road if you're landlocked. You have to join the Belt and Road to be land connected. But what this proves is that the more slanders, disinformation is, is spewed against the Belt and Road Initiative and against China, the more nations join it. Isn't that paradoxical? <laughs> so this is proves that actually nations in the developing world, especially, that they see that this new paradigm, which is represented by the Belt and Road Initiative, China's success in eliminating poverty, China's success in becoming an industrial nation in 30 years after it was poorer than most African nations in the 60s, that this proves for them that there is something correct about the method China has used for development. And therefore, more and more nations, now we have 143 nations totally of 190 nations in the Belt and Road. So as President Xi Jinping said about uh, President Trump building walls, he said the people who will try to build walls around China, they will find themselves surrounded by these walls. And uh, 
so the thing is, what we have now in, since we, I wanted to talk about Iraq, because in Iraq right now, we have a, what we call the Silk Road Revolution. Iraq after, Iraq has gone through hell for more than 40 years. We have had wars since I was born. We have had wars. We had civil war in the 70s, the Kurds with the government. Then we had the Iran-Iraq war eight years in the 80s. Then we had the Kuwait war, the first Gulf War, so-called. And Iraq was put under harsh economic sanctions, which killed half a million children and completely destroyed Iraq's relationship to the modern world. Even scientific magazines were not allowed to Iraq. Imagine. Uh, and then we had the, the invasion in 2003. And in all these wars and all the sanctions, what happened, Iraqi infrastructure was completely destroyed, but also the soft infrastructure like healthcare and education. And we have like almost two generations of people who did not really get good education and they became a cannon fodder for extremist groups uh, later. And we still have that problem today. Uh, so we had 2003 until, you know, the U.S.-British invasion of Iraq. And also in that war, we had what was left of Iraq's infrastructure, especially power, water, and also lots of industries which were built for many years were bombed and destroyed. So Iraq went into, you know, we have no agriculture, we have no industry, we have no clean water, we have no electricity. And after all these years, Iraq did not manage under U.S.-British supervision to rebuild any of that. Almost nothing of that was rebuilt. I mean, even is, Iraq is not even back to the early 70s in terms of infrastructure, healthcare, and education. So uh, when the, the Belt and Road Initiative was launched, uh, there are certain Iraqi uh, people in the elites you know, the problem is that we have what the United States and Britain did in 2003. They did not overthrow a government. They destroyed a state. And there's a big difference between these two terms. A government can be changed, but the state will remain the same, like you have when you have elections. You can have elections, the government is changed, but the state, which is an important institution of the nation, which includes all aspects of the services, the military, the security, the intelligence, the scientific institutions, the economic institutions, all these things remain intact. But in Iraq and later in Libya, the state was demolished. In Tunisia, in the color revolution, in Egypt, in Syria, in spite of all the horrors, the state remained intact. And that's very important because you can quickly rebuild the physical things which were destroyed. But you cannot rebuild a state which took hundreds and probably thousands of years to build. You cannot, this nation building is a stupid term. You cannot build a nation from scratch in a few years. So therefore, what happened is that we have had a leadership in Iraq, which is sectarian uh, in every aspect. It's ethnic. It's divided, Iraq is divided into different ethnicities and, and sects. And even the sects themselves, there's infighting. The Shia, there are 10 different groups. The Kurds, we have two, three different groups. The Sunnis, we have dozens of groups fighting each other. And then we have it all over Iraq. So, but then like in Lebanon, 
they came up with a, you know, using chewing gum to keep the Iraqi <laughs> structure together. And the chewing gum is the money of oil. So everybody get their share of the oil, uh, uh, you know, to keep their mouth shut and stay calm. And then these diff different ethnic and sectarian groups, they will give some money to their followers. So they also keep their mouth shut. And that's where all the oil money and even the trillion dollars the United States spent went. It was all corruption. Iraq is still one of the most corrupt countries on the planet. But none of that money, Iraq spent also had $2 trillion of oil money in these 17 years, which was squandered. No infrastructure was rebuilt, no electricity, not really. I mean, there was some electricity was built. And we were importing gas and electricity from Iran, a country which is under sanctions. And Iran, by the way, also exports electricity to Afghanistan, which is also has been under US sanctions, but never managed to produce electricity in Afghanistan, in spite of the fact that the United States, NATO, and the EU spent $2 trillion, but still Afghanistan cannot produce electricity, cannot produce food. So Iran, which is under harsh sanctions, both sends electricity and gas and food and medicine to its neighbors who are under American control. <laughs> so that's, that's the huge irony. But anyway, there are people in Iraq who were in the government, they were facing a massive revolt by the people in 2017, 2018, 2019. So some people said, look, we can, at least we can take part of the oil money and use it for reconstruction. And that was a smart thing to do, you know? And therefore, less than 5% less than of the oil, uh, the, there was an agreement between Iraq and China in 2018. It's popularly called uh, oil for reconstruction agreement. Uh, and it was designed by Iraqi economists, actually, old classic uh, traditional economists, which is a barter deal. So the Iraqis and the Chinese create a fund in China where the Iraqis put hundred, the money from 100,000 barrels per day uh, into that fund. Iraq sells every day 1 million barrels of oil to China and generally 3.8 million barrels of oil every day Iraq sells. So out of the million barrels per day sold to China, 100,000 barrels, the money of that 100,000 barrels will be put in a special fund. And when that fund reaches about $1.5 billion, the Chinese credit insurance company, Sinoshore, will add through Chinese banks uh, $8.5 billion to the fund. So it becomes $10 billion. So Iraq will put in 1.15% uh, of the fund capital and China will put in 85% uh, of the capital. And then Iraq will uh, define certain infrastructure projects and ask the Chinese companies to build them. The Chinese banks will take money from this fund, which is mostly Chinese money, and start building the infrastructure, electricity, transport, water, forestation, ports, airports, hospitals, housing, all kinds of things. 
But then this, this fund is elastic because Iraq continues to put money into the fund. And the Chinese continue to add 85% to that fund. So it will zoom into $30 billion, $100 billion, as, un, as long as the agreement goes, which is 20 years, China will continue exchanging uh, these funds for infrastructure. The agreement was signed in, in, in May 2018, and then the government was changed. It was not activated. A new government came in, headed by Adul Abdul Mahdi, who is an engineer by profession, uh, but still an Islamist, a Shia leader, uh, not clergyman, but uh, a secular uh, guy. But he's an engineer in, at the core uh, and studied physics. So he went to China in September, late September 2019, to activate the agreement which was signed by the previous government. And the money started going into the fund from the Iraqi oil on October 1st. The problem was that as soon as Adul Abdul Mahdi came back to Baghdad, there was a huge revolution waiting for him. Of course, people were angry about the lack of services. Young people go and study for many, many years and they come out unemployed. Uh, what the Americans and British and the previous Iraqi governments did is that they give them an employment, a fake employment, where they do nothing and they get a salary just to pay for food and medicine and you know, necessities of life and have a place to live. Uh, so there were massive demonstrations, uh, but then a third party came into these demonstrations and started shooting both at police and at the demonstrators, exactly as happened in the Maidan in Ukraine in 2014. And then the whole protest turned into a massive bloody revolt all over Iraq. And the government, which had just reached an agreement which would solve all these problems is suddenly threatened. And then the US embassy, the British embassy, European embassies, European Arab TV channels started mobilizing against this government and mobilizing against China. And in January, that was a few months later in January 3rd, the United States under Trump administration decided to kill uh, assassinate uh, Major General Qasem Soleimani and the head of the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who was a close collaborator and friend of him, when they were fighting against ISIS. ISIS would never been defeated without the joint work of the Iranians with the Iraqi so-called militias, and actually the United States helped at the end with air force. But without that collaboration, ISIS would have taken over all of Iraq and Baghdad. But in January 3rd, 2020, there was a decision to assassinate Qasem Soleimani when he was coming on the invitation of the same prime minister I mentioned to start a discussion, a mediation between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And of course, all the intelligence services knew about this man landing that day and he was shot with a, a Hellfire missile from a drone, American drone, on the way from the airport in the middle of the night. And then that created, that was the final nail in the coffin of the government. Uh, there were massive demonstrations. People came and attacked the American embassy and there was chaos. And then the, this prime minister was forced to resign.
in March 2020. Now, the government which replaced him, they did, uh, because they were not elected, they were supposed to prepare for the next elections. But instead of preparing for the next elections, they went on uh, taking strategic decisions for Iraq, like changing the whole budgetary policy, uh, devaluing the Iraqi currency in, upon orders from the IMF, discussions or instructions from the IMF and World Bank. They started privatizing Iraqi enterprises. They, they ordered a very important contract for the building of the, of the uh, FAO port. I'm sorry, still hear me? Yes, we can hear you great. Uh, okay, okay, because my, my screen went uh, black. <laughs> anyway, so they, they, they took this FAO port the Grand File Port, which is in the southern tip of Iraq, which is squeezed, a small area squeezed between Kuwait and Iran. This was also a creation of the British Empire to make Iraq a landlocked country. Uh, and there was a, a plan for many, many years to build a massive port. It's called the Fao Grand Port, but it has been obstructed. There is a lot of corruption. But then the Chinese had made offers to build the the whole port in uh, its uh, large capacity uh, and build auxiliary projects like water desalination, power production, but also petrochemical industries and so on and so forth. And then go on and build uh, the Iraqi railway system and make Iraq a bridge between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean and Europe. So that was the Chinese intention. It was also part of this China-Iraq agreement. Uh, and the Chinese offered to do it uh, uh, in a three years with $2 billion, $2 billion, $2.1 billion, sorry, and complete it in three years and like a turnkey project. It will be working as a complete port. Instead, this new government, which came on the back of the this uh, color revolution headed by the former intelligence uh, chief, what they did is they, they, they kicked out the Chinese and they gave the contract to a Korean company, Daewoo Engineering and Construction, which will build the, the port, not complete. It will not be a complete port. It will take four years rather than three years and it will cost $500 million more. So, that, that insane decision and similar decisions, if we have time, I can go through the decision to take Iraqi oil from where it is produced in the South, where it's very easy to ship it to Asia, where most of the oil goes, to take and build a $27 billion pipeline to Jordan, to the Aqaba uh, port, uh, which is in a dangerous area, and move the oil there, and then ship it back in ships back to Asia. And it will cost, tens of billions of dollars while it costs it cost a few dollars by sending. So the, this new government came in and took strategic decisions which have destroyed even more of Iraq than uh, it, 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 and it, it's, it's a caretaker government. It's not supposed to do anything other than organize the next elections. Now we have the new elections. Uh, the same people came back to power Actually, the corrupt forces got strengthened. 
and, and this new the parliament was opened uh, last uh, Friday or Monday uh, and now this probably the same prime minister will be ch chosen he was not elected but now he could might become the prime minister and we have the same forces the corrupt forces will take over Iraq but in this period between uh, when the Iraqi government decided to give the the, the contract to this Korean company, there was a, a groups of young people in the city of Basra where the port is supposed to be built. They were organizing on social media uh, against this decision, but it was a very small group. And then they contacted me and said, look, you know about economics, you know about the Silk Road we have seen, why don't you give classes about, you know, on Facebook about this thing? And then I, I had just started the Arabic school of LaRouche's physical economics. So I said, okay, I can do both at the same time because this gives us an example how this uh, LaRouche's economics can be implemented and the whole new Silk Road idea could be implemented in Iraq because we did similar things in Syria. We did similar things for Yemen uh, on the reconstruction. But there were other activists I discovered later, like one guy called Karim Badr, uh, he is called Karim Silk Road Badr, you know, because he has been talking about this Belt and Road Initiative. He lives in Holland, but he's an Iraqi activist. He has been talking about the Belt and Road. I didn't know about it for more than two years. And then he found me. And then there were other people, uh, officials in the government, uh, people who were in former government. They, we got together and they, we established the so-called FAO Intellectual Group. Uh, people who have certain level of knowledge about these matters of economics, about Iraqi economy. And then we started, we established a special group, but that group was, I mean, we had two former ministers of transport, one former minister of transport and one former minister of justice and uh, experts from oil industry and, and uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Marine Iraqi Ports Authority. But then this thing grew very much but in the last few months, we have people organizing based on the knowledge provided by Karim Badr, by me and others, they started organizing gatherings, conferences and demonstrations. So now we have demonstrations in many Iraqi cities in the South uh, and in Baghdad itself, in the same place where the Saddam Hussein statue stood before and then the, the American soldiers toppled it. It's called Al-Firdaus Square. There are every week there are demonstrations there and also in the book market, Al Mutanabi book market in Baghdad. So the, now the, the demands are that we, first of all, we reactivate whichever government comes in, that it should reactivate the China Iraq agreement, the oil for reconstruction agreement, two, that the, the corruption around the port contract given to Daewoo, because there is an $800 million discrepancy. And people suspect that there were bribes involved, that this contract should be abolished and the Chinese companies should be invited again, or there should be an open bidding by all companies in the world. And three, that Iraq should build the development corridor as part of the Belt and Road. And the development corridor, as we have defined in the LaRouche movement, Lyndon LaRouche defined it, because the new Silk Road is not really a trade route, although trade plays a role. But the Chinese president, he called it the economic belt of the new Silk Road. 
It didn't say the trade belt. The, and this is the idea of the development corridor whereby you build infrastructure, transport, water, power, oil and gas pipelines, electricity lines, and you bring these tools of civilization to areas where you have big human or natural resources and you develop agro-industrial centers around these development corridors. It, it, historically, we have civilizations developing around rivers, rivers where at such a development corridor. Now we can build railways on both sides of the rivers. We can build highways. We can build power plants and power transmission lines. So we can take the natural resources from the ground from these regions. We can use the human resources and we can start industries and agriculture. So that Iraq, which now depends to up to 97% of everything the Iraqi society consumes is imported from outside. Iraq sells oil and imports everything. Now the crisis will come when the oil price goes down, Iraq will not be able to buy all the necessities. So you have these crises. So Iraq in 10 years, if we build all these projects as we define it, Iraq will become an industrial and agricultural country again which can produce its own food, it can produce most of its industrial products, consumer products, and even export. As Lyndon LaRouche says in this speech in Abu Dhabi you referenced, is that the Gulf countries, the oil exporting countries, they should move gradually into using oil as an industrial feedstock. They should build nuclear power and use the oil for petrochemical industries, plastics, chemicals, all kinds of things which can increase the value added of the oil, every barrel of oil by six to 10 times. And that would be a source of wealth, but it's in a different kind of wealth, not selling oil and using the money to consume. So that's what we are having now in Iraq. There's a revolt going on, but it's an informed revolt. It's civil, it's uh, peaceful. So that's what we are involved in. Hussein, this is a, a really tremendous report. I want to, again, encourage people to go to the links. In fact, there's a third article that's extremely relevant and important, which is your recent article from March of uh, 2021 entitled A Grassroots Movement for the New Silk Road Grows in Iraq, LaRouche's Ideas, a Catalyst, which goes through uh, you know, much of what you've described in, in greater detail and so forth. Um, and I wonder if I just want to sort of bolster what you're doing. Um, so I wonder if I could read a little bit from LaRouche's comments in, uh, in Abu Dhabi in 2003. Would that be OK? Sure. OK, because you uh, the, the, both of the things that you addressed here, the value added uh, question in terms of oil and the development corridor are uh, so crucial to the fundamental ideas of Lyndon LaRouche. I'm gonna read aloud from a short section. By concentrating resources of transportation, water, and power within development corridors, the most efficient use of those resources can be managed. The most economical use of the total available land area is achieved by tending to concentrate development in those corridors. Under conditions of continued growth, 
subsidiary development corridor corridors will branch out from the principal ones. The same method can be applied with a combination of technologies either existing or within reach to transform the interior of Asia, including its deserts and tundras. Under proper policies, the net cost of such development corridors is less than zero. As goods flow along the spine of the corridor, new wealth is generated in and around each of the nodal agro-industrial residential locations along the route. Now look at the core of the Arab world from the Atlantic to the borders of Iran, Turkey, and Transcaucasus. Center our focus upon the Suez Canal and Sinai, where Africa joins Asia. Focus on seaborne transport between the Mediterranean and Indian Ocean. See the crisscrossing of the region by relevant natural choices for routes of land-based development corridors intersecting seaports. Think of the volumes of raw materials and semi-finished goods flowing toward the Middle East by sea and by land from Asia westward and from Europe eastward. And, uh, and, he, and he sort of completes this section by saying that, the, that Southwest Asia is and was and remains one of the great natural cro crossroads in the development of civilization. I mean, this whole thesis is clearly proven true by the development of China in the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, I mean, how many, how many worthless articles were written in Bloomberg claiming that the Chinese development policies were going to, uh, you know, end up costing them too much money and that they were going to go bankrupt for the, for the development of development corridors. But I want to further say that, you know, what you have done in your work has been to actually map out these development corridors um, to which LaRouche referred. And now we're on the cusp of seeing them implemented. Um, I know you wanted to go on to discuss Syria and, and other uh, factors, other regions and other elements. Um, yeah. So please go continue. Sure. Yeah, concerning the development corridor, I mean, I use an example from Sweden where I live, uh, which proves LaRouche's concept. He says the cost of transport becomes less than zero. In northern Sweden, we have massive uh, minerals, like uh, uh, copper, iron, and other minerals. Uh, but it's a sparsely populated area. It's very cold region. So this has been a mining area for several hundred years. But in modern Sweden, what happened is that they built infrastructure from the north to the south, but also built hydropower on the rivers in the north. So there is a corridor which is almost 2,000 kilometers long from northern Sweden to southern Sweden. I have an illustration of that. But along that corridor, new metal industries were established. And the Swedes are very innovative, actually. You know, the ball bearing is a Swedish innovation. <laughs> and so along the road, every 100 kilometers, the iron ore travels. It's turned into something new, a new product, a new parts, new machines. By the time it reaches Swed southern Sweden and western Sweden, we have the car industry and other industries. The value of every unit of the ore taken from the ground increases by 2,000 times. So no matter how much the railways cost from the north to the south, 
it pays back to society many, 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 many times. So that's the, what is genius. You know, you take a stone from the ground and it travels along a, a, a railway or something, and then it is enriched. It's, its value is increased through human innovation, through creativity and technology by turning that stone to ore, to iron, to machines, and so on and so forth. So I use that a lot for the Iraqi people because we don't have an example from the region, but I, can, I use the same idea with the petrochemicals and oil because the oil can travel, raw oil can travel from Southern Iraq along the railways and the, the population centers. If we have industries, you can produce polymers, you can take the polymers, the plastics in the next station and turn them into plastics. And then you can turn the plastics into packaging, into pipes, into medical instruments. And the more it goes northward, this barrel of oil becomes worth more and more and more. And that's, that's what is interesting. So the Chinese have this, uh, one of the corridors of the Belt and Road goes from Western China to Central Asia, to Iran, and then West Asia. They don't define which countries. They say West Asia and to the Mediterranean, which is Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and so on, and to the Gulf. Uh, Iran last year, although there is all these sanctions, Iran signed also a 25-year strategic economic agreement with China, which is similar to Iraq, exchanging oil for technology and infrastructure. Uh, people talk a lot about the money involved. There is no money involved. It's a barter deal. People talk about $400 billion. That's nonsense. Only Iran's exports to China in 25 years will be more than $300 billion. So that doesn't make sense. What makes sense is the technology and the increase in productivity of the Iranian community, society, that's what is worth something. You cannot measure that by money or GDP because it changes from year to year uh, the more the society develops. And then you have Iraq uh, and then Syria and Lebanon. So in Iraq, we had this coup which blocked the cooperation with China. In Syria, in spite of the fact of that there was this horrible war, but with the help of Russia and even Iran and Hezbollah and so on, the Syrian state stayed intact and liberated most of its land. But all the region on the border between Iraq and Syria, you have either US forces occupying the crossing points or terrorist groups. Uh, and also the United States took over Syrian oil fields and even wheat silos in that region, and they have imposed harsh sanctions on Syria. Uh, and that makes even, so Iraq, Syria are crippled. And then we had Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon for many, many, many years was a cargo cult because you have a huge Lebanese diaspora uh, in Europe, in the United States, in South America, in Africa, who would send, who were sending money back home through the banks. The banks would take the money and the, the banks became the state <laughs> because the state doesn't have revenues. And the banks would take the money and lend the money to everybody who wants to buy things, build a house, a car. And that way they could charge interest on that. And they even lend the money to the state. Hussein, are you there? Somehow we can't hear you. 
it must be a technical issue. Well, he's trying to figure it out. Um, Hussein, I, I, we can't hear you at the moment. Interrupt me, Kate, if you hear something different. Um, while we're trying to figure it out, I want to take a moment to encourage people um, to register. You know what? I need to make a tweet that allows you to do this, but I'm going to encourage you to please register for the Monday conference that we're hosting the seminar on Afghanistan. And uh, I'll quickly make a tweet and handle that. But Hussein, are you there? We cannot hear you. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to remove him so that he doesn't think that he's still talking and then contact him another way. I've sent him a message too. Um, it just to keep things going a little bit and what he was talking about, if it's okay to, uh, the one thing in particular, what he was mentioning with the development corridors and, and the, the, the use of oil in Iraq and, you know, this principle you can apply to other oil rich countries right now that focus upon, um, what like uh, people like Leibniz or Hamilton or Henry Carey mentioned as um, domestic manufacturing or domestic commerce. Uh, that is a kind of key economic difference, which we, we, you can see being implemented in the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, as opposed to uh, colonial and imperial occupations going back throughout the centuries. And to just give an example of, of, of like what Hussein was describing as like the, the cargo cult of, of oil in Lebanon, um, even back when uh, the United States was a colony of, of Britain, uh, regarding its its capacity to manufacture steel, that was that wasn't allowed as far as it was a colony. But the 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 iron ore and the pig iron, which would be um, mined from the United States, uh, had to be sent back to England to be then uh, manufactured into steel proper, which would then be sent back to the Americas as an, a British export to be bought on, on the market there. And you can see the same principle at play in what Hussein's talking about with the, these cargo cults of oil, which necessitate uh, these these countries not being developed on a domestic level, not having their domestic commerce um, developed to the point where they can have their own manufacturing industries. Uh, so that's one of the key differences you can see in something like bringing the Belt and Road to Iraq, to Lebanon, to Syria, to Afghanistan is when you when you set up something like a development cor developmental corridor which focuses on getting uh, water and power and transportation to the domestic economy there in order for it to be able to produce its own goods domestically uh, to up to the point where it itself is being able to export those goods th that that's what we'd say you would want to look for in what is being proposed as a developmental plan or, or what's seen as the, the best economic group. And Daniel, please continue. If you got well, no, I totally agree with you. And uh, I mean, it's just so straight. It's so directly in front of us right now. Uh, you just have, I mean, listening to Hussein, you have to feel like increasingly upset about the total failure in the West to, uh, of any of major institutions to understand and to try to address it and try to act on it. And you can see they don't understand because they don't, their strategic efforts are miscalculations or failures, as in the attempted color revolution in Kazakhstan, which I think can be stayed, called a failure so far. 
But I want to take a moment. I have a best. I mean, my impression is probably what happened is that Hussein's phone died. So he's probably charging it. And I expect he's going to come right back up. Please take a look at the tweet that I put at the top. I'm going to go ahead and read the invitation to our January 17, 11 a.m. conference, um, which is titled To Stop the Murder of Afghanistan, being held by the International Schiller Institute. And if you click on the link that is in that tweet, then you can subscribe to that. Uh, okay, Hussein is asking how to get back, so I'll, I'll bring, he'll, he'll be coming on in just a moment. But, okay. I'm going to go ahead and read from this. As the year 2022 opens, let us all over, all over the world turn our thoughts not only to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but to his mission, the establishment of a beautiful community of all mankind. We must come to realize that the greatest disease threatening humanity is depraved indifference, shown most spectacularly in the deliberate starvation right now of millions in Afghanistan in the name of human rights. Moreover, if you let such an injustice happen to others, the same injustice will sooner or later happen to you. Nineteen people just died in a horrific fire in the Bronx, New York. There were over two dozen previously reported violations at that building. Among the dead were nine children, but hundreds of thousands of children are about to starve to death in Afghanistan. The cause of the deaths of innocent children in Afghanistan and in the Bronx is the same. The cause is a depraved indifference as to whether or not they either would or should survive. Once, nations aspired to prosperity for all citizens. It was called the general welfare of ourselves and our posterity. Now, because we refuse to stop Wall Street and the City of London's futile attempts to continue their bankrupt system, mass death beckons daily throughout the transatlantic world. We are told that, regrettably, mass death will become normal. It will be endemic in the form of pandemics or war or extreme events. If that be so, that must be a direct result of our depraved indifference, because we could have treated the sickest in the world first, but instead chose not to do so, and still continue to choose not to do so. We say no to this pact with despair and death. There is a plan called Ibn's Operation Ibn Sina, designed by the Schiller Institute, to resolve the just injustice underway in Afghanistan, and by that means create a united worldwide effort to roll back the glaring injustices in healthcare and other areas. Releasing Afghanistan's $9 billion in funds is only the beginning. You have the power to implement Operation Ibn Sina by joining us and rejecting depraved indifference. The way to defeat injustice is to create justice in the world now. In that way, perhaps, the unjust deaths of those who have died by fire in the Bronx, by famine in Afghanistan, and by the folly of doomed imperial ambitions all over the world can be the inspiration for the creation of the beautiful community that humanity truly requires and deserves. Please take some, a moment and register for that conference. I'm going to see what we're dealing with here. I think there may be a problem that would require us to restart the space, but I'm not sure. Because um, I thought he might have been, let's see. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, I removed him because I thought that he was sort of stuck in a technical problem. But I'm just realizing that it's possible that if you remove someone, they can't come back in. So let's see if that's the case. If so, we'll have to start over. I mean, obviously not start over, but continue in a separate space. I've sent him an invite on DM. I'm not sure if that'll make a difference if you've done that yet. Oh, good. Oh, thank goodness. So it's not so bad. Okay, here we go. Great. Ah, where did, what was it that you were getting to? That was in um, Lebanon. Yes. Uh, it, it, just about, you know, maybe 15 seconds before you dropped off the whole program mm -hmm. um, is when you, we stopped being able to hear you. And then I just read from the invitation to Monday's event okay. and encouraged everyone to um, to register. So please go ahead and maybe at like 2.10 or 2.15, Hussein, would be a good time to start taking, or in other words, in, in, yeah. in 12 minutes or so, would be a good time to start taking questions. Okay, good. Yeah, no, but I was describing the situation in Lebanon when the Lebanese government started negotiating with the Chinese side in May. Uh, 2020 uh, uh, projects for power plants, railways, a port in Tripoli, renovating the port in Beirut, and uh, and uh, rebuilding the water system so there would be agricultural production possible, and so on and so forth. But the United States ambassador got into the picture and started attacking China, which was a, actually a breach of diplomacy. And then the deputy uh, secretary for uh, Secretary of State under Pompeo, David Schenker traveled to the region and to Lebanon and started threatening the Lebanese. So in June, in late June, I was, you know, I was following this also with contacts in Lebanon on social media, and I was encouraging them to, you know, push this uh, agreement, these agreements with China. But then when I saw the threats from the United States, uh, and then I discovered later that the British were also involved in mobilizing people against the Chinese, but not, uh, but very discreetly. Uh, so I issued a warning on 28th of June, uh, which then I wrote in English as this article you referenced uh, on, in, in July uh, 2020, July 14, 2020, where I said that Lebanon should join the Belt and Road, but to watch out for the war party. Because in Lebanon, I wrote, it's very easy to, uh, to start a civil war or all kinds of disturbances because the country is so divided ethnically and, and sectar in its sectarian terms. And Israel, you have on the other side, they can any day just bomb the country. So I said you should go fast forward and get these agreements signed and put the machines on the ground because somebody might start something horrible. Uh, provoke a civil war. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there were provocations in the streets, but they, they did not mount to a, a full-scale revolt. But when the explosion in the port of Beirut took place in August, August the 4th, uh, everything went upside down. Uh, the whole country was shaken. People started calling for the government to resign. Macron flew to Lebanon and treated Lebanon as his, you know, part of his property. 
And he started giving instructions to the Lebanese government. And he said, well, we will help you we'll do this and that, but you have to listen to us. And suddenly, and also he told them that you should go back and negotiate with the World Bank and IMF. We will get you some money to survive. You get some bread and that's it. We might get you oil, free oil from Iraq and Saudi Arabia. So you can have, have some heating and electricity, but there will be no massive reconstruction of the country. Forget about the China agreement. Macron didn't say it, but what we see after that explosion is that all the negotiations with China stopped. Nobody ever since then have talked about going east, not even Hassan Nasrallah, the head of the, of the Hezbollah. And the whole thing was forgotten. So like in Iraq, Lebanon went through a coup. The government was changed. There's a new government there. They are trying to mend fences with Saudi Arabia and go back to the IMF and World Bank, say this is the only way we can get out of our troubles. Forget about China uh, and so on and so forth. So Lebanon, Iraq and Syria are the last pieces in the, in the whole West Asia corridor because all the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Kuwait, Bahrain, all those strong allies of the United States, they work intensively with China. They build ports, they build power plants, petrochemicals, <laughs> railways with China. And nobody is objecting. Of course, last month, the United States objected to a port, Port Khalifa in Abu Dhabi. They said the Chinese are using it uh, for military purposes. So the Emirates had to, to stop working with Costco, the Chinese company, on, on a terminal there. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, like two days ago, all the foreign ministers of the Gulf Cooperation Council went to China, uh, just like this. And in the middle of the corona, you know, the Chinese, they don't really receive officials from other countries. The country is locked down. The only ex exceptions were to receive the leader of the Taliban or the spokesperson of the Taliban. And now these foreign ministers of the Gulf, I suspect that what the Chinese are trying to do, especially after what happened in Kazakhstan, they want to renew the commitment of those countries to their cooperation with China. China imports 10 million barrels of oil. Most of it comes from the Gulf. So if anything happens to that oil coming from the Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Bahrain, Kuwait, uh, Iraq, and Iran, anything happens to that, China is in big trouble. Japan too, India too, and South Korea too. So that's a real strategic bottleneck. And I think the Chinese want to renew the commitment of those countries to work with China, which they do because they, China is the biggest trade partner and economic partner of all these countries. So that's, that's where things stand in, that, in this sense. And I think we can go further to Afghanistan or the other questions, because that is really what defines the new paradigm. Thank you, that's great. Uh, I wanna... Um... I mean, I, I, there's a lot of questions that people may have here, uh, including, you know, which more about what you expect will be happening. I want to um, take a moment here to encourage people, since we're going into sort of the second part of our program, which is a Q&A session, please share this with some people. Make a tweet encouraging people to come in. There should be some really valuable dialogue here. And I'm also going to request of everyone to take a look at the top of the space um, oops, actually, that's the wrong one. I've included, uh, of course, the, in the place to register for 
the upcoming Schiller Institute conference. Uh, but I also have made a tweet that I'm going to share with you as soon as I can that uh, goes through how to, uh, gives a link for contributing to the Schiller Institute. And I really want to encourage everyone here to become a recurring, uh, a member with a recurring contribution. Uh, you can decide how much you'd like to give, five, 10, 20, $100 a month, but any of that would be much appreciated and, you know, allow us to extend this policy and the activity of our, of our organization uh, all across the world and increasingly get a recognition that this is the way that things have got to go. So with that being said, please, if you have a question or a comment you'd like to raise to Hussein, uh, you're invited to. And I want to acknowledge that we have uh, uh, some um, important guests in our, you know, listening in, for example, Golmakai uh, Saleh, who is the uh, one of the leaders of the End Afghan Starvation Campaign. And so I want to encourage people definitely to follow her and to support her efforts and the efforts of that campaign. Um, and I really thank you for joining us today. So anyone, so we'll, we certainly want to invite you to make a comment to the, to the listeners and to raise any, uh, any comments to Hussein, if you can, Gulmakai. And uh, in addition, but I mean, it's, the floor is open. So if you'd like to comment, please do. If you'd like to speak up, please do. And we'll incorporate that into the process. You can hit the mute button to unmute yourself, and that will serve to request the opportunity to speak. Um, or you can make a, you know, you can make a, I think that's the best way to do it, because you can also make it sort of an emoji come up like a hand. All right, so, um, but I'll go ahead and, and raise to you, Hussein. Um, the topic of, Afghan of Afghanistan. Oh, very good. Here's Golmakai. Let's uh, give her the opportunity to speak. Hello. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, thank you for this great presentation. I really enjoyed it and it was very beneficial, eye opening uh, to see and how things are working in Iraq. It was very good. Um, most of Asia is connected and we do have that long history of the Silk Road and Afghanistan being the central of this Silk Road. Uh, it's been affected all this uh, parts of Asia uh, by what the United States have been doing with their, uh, their way of approaching uh, the events in Asia. So being part of the Afghan starvation, we notice a lot of things uh, happening in Afghanistan, especially right after the Taliban took over and the United States of America leaving. One thing they did, the United States government did, was put a, a sanction on all of Afghanistan. So the very people they were trying to protect for the past 20 years are now the very people who are starving to death because of the policies Biden put forward. These policies, uh, are affecting the economy. It's affecting uh, people getting paid. It's affecting the aid. It's affecting the development aid. So it has a big effect on all over um, Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is headed towards 
a famine because of these sanctions, uh, mostly of these sanctions. Yeah, there was a drought, which has some effect on it, but more, more than that, the sanction was like a, um, a free fall into the humanitarian crisis Afghanistan is facing today. So that's why uh, when we were seeing um, the core group of an Afghan starvation, when they were seeing these articles and publication of how Afghanistan is starving, uh, in early October, we decided to form this uh, campaign. And we've been working on it ever since then. We have a research group he, who tried to find the best solution to alleviate some of the crisis that's happening during the winter season. So we wanted to save our people. I'm originally from Afghanistan to myself. So we wanted to save the people of Afghanistan and let them survive through the winter. So our focus became on the humanitarian aid and the development aid. Even sometimes the United States uh, does uh, release some of the aid, but it's just like a drop in the bucket, uh, which is not enough. Um, many people have not been paid since May. Uh, the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, a lot of the workers have not been paid. Uh, there's no cash flow going on in Afghanistan. Everything, um, the prices of basic food necessities, um, wood, gas to heat up the home has gone high. Uh, sending money to Afghanistan, uh, for example, Western Union allows only 200 every once a week or every few days. And it's not available everywhere. And maybe the major cities like in Kabul, uh, it's uh, still functioning. GoFundMe is also restricting uh, fundraisers um, being sent, uh, collected and sent to Afghanistan. And they question you. Um, sometimes even uh, MoneyGram, I hear, which I haven't used, but I, I hear from others, sometimes there's restrictions on that. One article had written that Afghanistan is, uh, they're literally, literally strangling the people of Afghanistan because of these sanctions. And as an Af Afghan and others Afghans, we felt that, you know, even though we're living in the West, we did feel that strangling because we want to provide, we want to help, uh, but we don't always want our country always relying on A2. So with an Afghan starvation, we have that petition out, which has seven demands focused on the humanitarian aid and the development aid. We're, we are about to close this campaign up and start our second phase, which is uh, we are thinking about the long term of Afghanistan, which is to make it a development country where they don't have to economically develop, um, rely on any other one. Because Afghanistan is very rich on resources. The people are very uh, hardworking. They're determined. It's it, they take pride in working. They do, they're not the type of people who would like to rely on aid forever. Uh, it is necessary for the meantime for them to rely on aid because of the situation they are in. Um, so that's where we are so far. We did have a successful rally in front of the White House in D.C. and Vienna uh, regarding this issue. Um, we made a lot of awareness, many people were not aware. So we, we did become very successful with the hashtag and Afghan starvation. Many people were not aware of the situation uh, of Afghanistan. Many people are still blaming, uh, some people are blaming uh, the current government. They say it's because of them. 
some uh, Americans who are not aware of the sanctions and the the frozen assets, they they assume that we're asking for new funds to be raised and given to Afghanistan. Uh, to my understanding, it seems that they're not aware of these sanctions that were put on Afghanistan. So that's why it is important that we still continue to make awareness uh, of the sanctions Biden and his administrations have put on Afghanistan. And this is the real reason why Afghanistan is headed, headed towards a famine. So um, thank you, Daniel. I think uh, that's all I had to say for now. Thank you for letting me speak about it. You're always welcome. Thank you very much. Hussein, would you like to respond? Yeah, well, th thank you, Gul. Gul means rose, by the way. Thank you. Uh, no, this is a, this is a really, uh, I mean, this is a criminal part. This is a continuation of the war. Helga Seftaru said the war did not end really in Afghanistan by the U.S. troops withdrawing. They have continued the war, but now the war is engulfing the whole people and punishing the whole people. And by the way, collective punishment is a war crime. The fact that the United States has not, is not declaring war against the, the Afghanistan people you know, is irrelevant. But this is a war crime against the people. I mean, but we have witnessed this against people in Yemen. Uh, Yemen is now forgotten almost. And Afghanistan is not even being mentioned in the media anymore. Uh, after the whole stories that we, we saw about the airport in Kabul and so on. And now this is a really, it, it's a, it tells something about the paradigm we have in, in the Western countries. Uh, that this indifference, uh, which is, uh, you know, inhuman to indifference to human suffering, and trying always to blame someone else to the ill deeds one commits. I mean, look at the, the whole situation in Afghanistan. It tells you something about why the old paradigm should end. Both geopolitics, the idea of using a people against other people, using geographical uh, factors to undermine other nations, and also making nations putting nations in a trap, like this aid trap. Now, people talk day and night about China's debt trap. Now, the Chinese say, well, the real debt trap is poverty. Because you are, you are making people dependent. You keep people poor. That's the real trap. If you are in that trap, that's the worst thing you can be. So this is what has happened in Afghanistan, unfortunately, 20 years $2 trillion spent, but there is no power production in Afghanistan. There is no clean water. The agricultural production is still primitive and so on and so forth. Imagine if you, the United States and NATO and the EU had used all this money to make Afghanistan an example for China and to showcase and in the face of China, in the face of Russia, in the face of Iran, say, look, with our system, you can become a prosperous, wealthy nation. Everybody talks about all the minerals in Afghanistan. You know what? You cannot use, you cannot extract that, these minerals because minerals, you need clean water 
and power to extract things from the ground. Without clean water, lots of clean water and lots of energy, you cannot do mining. This is a very simple fact. So this is a, just a testimony what has happened in Afghanistan, which should end now because we, as Gould said, we have to have humanitarian aid now. We have to release the funds of, this is the quickest way actually to relieve the situation in Afghanistan by releasing the funds owned by the Afghan people. It's not owned by the Taliban. This is the, you know, what I said about the difference between the state and the government. The state of Afghanistan owns that money and that money can immediately be used to import food and medicine and so on from neighboring countries. You cannot fly food and medicine and other necessities for 40 million people. This is physically impossible. Even if you have the history's greatest humanitarian aid operation, you cannot fly food, medicine, and other things to, as aid to 40 million people. Just unfreeze the money and the, and the Afghani people will start buying food and the trucks will start flowing from Pakistan, from Iran, from Uzbekistan, from Kyrgyzstan, and so on and so forth, from China. There are trains going now from China to Afghanistan and so on and so forth. So that's this, the quickest and simplest way to relieve the situation. Release the funds of the sovereign nation of Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a sovereign nation and it has its institutions, it has a central bank, it has banks, it has a trade ministry, and all these things will work again when this, these funds are released. So that's step number one, but also we should have humanitarian aid, but not make Afghanistan completely dependent on aid. That has been the big failure of the United States and Europe all these years, dealing with every issue, and the worst cases are in, in Africa. Before China came in and started building massive infrastructure projects, African nations were completely dependent on, on aid, which leads you nowhere. Would you speak a little bit about the uh, proposals that you've made, Hussein, uh, in, in terms of, um, well, actually, you know what I'll do? Is I'm just going to show the map. And if I'm going to put a, a tweet that will share in the space that you can, that will show the map and then people can go and take a look at that. And if you'd like to say a little bit more about it, this might be a good opportunity. So I'll yeah, share well, that in just a moment. Go right ahead. If, if I don't see it, I guess it's the map of the, uh, the Afghan development corridors. Uh, isn't it? Yes, it'll take me about 10 seconds to get it up. Yeah, okay. No, I think even before the US and NATO troops evacuated, uh, already in July, Helga Tseplarush, who could see this coming, we, we had a conference, uh, a couple of conferences already on what to do with Afghanistan the moment the United States and others withdraw. What should the United States itself do? So we, went back to things, and I also had communication uh, earlier with people in the region, is the best thing to do is to, of course, 
make sure that the community does not collapse, but also that as soon as possible, Afghanistan should be integrated into the Belt and Road Initiative. Afghanistan did sign an agreement with China to join the Belt and Road already in 2016, but like in Iraq, it was never implemented uh, due to pressure. So the Chinese could not do much. You had these copper, fee, copper mining things. China wanted to invest, that didn't work either. But building in Afghanistan's infrastructure would have been the first priority and joining the Belt and Road and connecting Afghanistan to its geographical environment as a bridge between South Asia, Central Asia, West Asia, uh, that would become make Afghanistan as it was before a hub for both trade but also economic exchanges uh, in the region. But the, 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 the priority should also be to rebuilding Afghanistan's water systems. Afghanistan has an ancient system of the Qanat, you know, the Kares of irrigation, but this should be modernized. We need large scale Qanat systems. We need to build transport, roads and railways uh, so that the Afghani people uh, can both have agricultural development and use their mining resources. We need to have massive power we have, we do have, there is ample water coming into Afghanistan from the mountains, but it, most of it evaporates or runs off. It's not used. So you need to build dams, uh, large, medium and small dams all over Afghanistan to save water, generate power and use the water for agricultural projects. All these things can be done with existing technology. It doesn't take much, but that's where the direction should be. And therefore we, we immediately started working with people. I looked at the plans which were already in the, the, the Afghan foreign ministry had a special uh, office on this uh, Belt and Road or you know, this integration, regional integration process. So th th there's, there's all kinds of opportunities for Afghanistan to become integrated into the Belt and Road uh, initiative and the new Silk Road and connecting but all these geopolitics have prevented Afghanistan from, uh, from being that. So that's why we, we started that process before the U.S. Uh, left Afghanistan. And we continue with that. But now, the, of course, the priority, the immediate priority is to relieve the humanitarian situation. But I think in the future, Afghanistan will become a, 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 a very important connection between South Asia, Central Asia, and also you have all these plans for pipelines, gas and oil pipelines from Central Asia to Pakistan and India and the Arabian Sea, Indian Ocean. Uh, you have also from Iran, uh, so on and so forth. Between Afghanistan and China, there's a huge barrier, the huge mountains. Uh, but the connection through the China-Pakistan economic corridor is much easier. Uh, and the Chinese actually have done uh, fascinating things, as they usually do, using social media because they are there's a huge campaign. Hello? Oh, we can so, still hear you. Yeah, no, there was, Afghanistan is known for its, uh, uh, you know, pines. You know, this is uh, nuts, special nuts, uh, uh, which are famous in Italy, for example. They use it in producing pesto, uh, uh, pine nuts. 
And now there's a huge campaign in all over China to buy small packages of Afghani pine nuts in order to help the Afghani people. <laughs> so, so they are flying pine nuts. Chinese aircraft is flying pine nuts in small packages to China to, to, to buy uh, pie, uh, pine nuts to help the people in Afghanistan. But, you know, th this is what the whole, this whole thing is. So it, it hurts in the heart because it's so easy to turn situations around. It's so easy to make Afghanistan prosperous because the people of Afghanistan are hardworking, as Gul said, you know, and they have all the resources they need, but you don't have the, the tools. The only thing that the Afghani people need is the tools. That's what is fascinating about the belt, this economic development corridor which Darush proposes. That gives the Afghani people the tools, the water, the power, the transport, so they can turn their country into a paradise as it was before. I mean, the Persian kings used to spend the summer in Afghanistan because that was the garden where they enjoyed life most. Yeah. So Afghanistan can become that paradise again. Every country basically can, in all Eurasia, Africa, you have so much resources, but it's not the natural resources that makes things. It's, if you don't have these tools, it's very difficult to, to develop the country. Thank you. Uh, we have a couple more people listening. Very glad to see people joining. And we also, uh, including Syrian girl. And we have um, a request, another request to raise a comment or a question. So let me just do a brief recap for people who are joining. We've, uh, Hussein gave a extended briefing on the development of a kind of a Silk Road re revolution in Iraq, the expanding uh, public movement of demonstrations, of seminars, of uh, demands to uh, pursue the China-Iraq uh, oil and uh, oil for oil. Um, I'm sorry, the exact phrase. Last oil for reconstruction. Thank you. Oil for reconstruction. Uh, this is an old, uh, LaRouche called it oil for technology in the 70s. Right. Right. There were various, you know, areas in which that was proposed. But uh, there's a wonderful article you can read, which is in one of the featured tweets. We have a bunch of tweets up there. But the, the, if you go all the way over, there's a wonderful article that reviews all of this in depth. It includes the text of the agreement, the Iraq-China Reconstruction Fund uh, Memorandum of Understanding, uh, as translated by Hussein. At the bottom of the article, you also have a very good short assessment of the article as an expression of Hamilton, I mean, excuse me, of the agreements as an expression of Hamiltonian banking by EIR's economics editor, Paul Gallagher, now editor, now co-editor. And um, so I really want to recommend to people to make sure to get to the articles from Hussein and read them in depth. He also had an article from this past March specifically on this grassroots movement in Iraq for uh, the Belt and Road for the cooperation. And then further, we discussed uh, the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, we have a, a conference coming up on Monday to stop the murder of Afghanistan, which you can find in the featured tweets, a link to register for that. It's going to be 11 a.m. Eastern. So um, would it be OK to go to a, another uh, call in question, so to speak, or comment, Hussein? Yeah, just well, very, very briefly. Uh, since you mentioned Alexander Hamilton, because 
we made a point, Paul Gallagher and I, that the agreement between China and Iraq is not a loan agreement or anything. It's credit. It's credit based on using oil as an asset. And you leverage that asset to issue credit, which will increase the productive powers of the Iraqi society by building infrastructure. Now, this is exactly what Alexander Hamilton, the first US Treasury Secretary said in the report on credit. I think it's a report to Congress on credit, where he says the purpose of all credit is to cherish the creative powers of labor, of society, the creative powers. It's not the natural resource, it's not. You issue credit, you use an asset as a, nation, as a sovereign nation. You have the right to issue credit, to use it to increase the creative and productive powers of that society. And you do that by building what LaRouche calls an economic platform, which is modern infrastructure, transport, water, power, healthcare, education, and scientific research. I just want to add real quick too that uh, people should to try and check out um, our associate Michael Billington has an interview with Chinese economist uh, Justin Ifu Lin, which is on our the Schiller Institute YouTube and the website uh, that where he goes in in depth about the Hamiltonian principles explicitly behind uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Great. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and bring on uh, our next uh, person requesting to speak. Please introduce yourself. Uh, go right ahead. He's actually, he's connecting right now. Hopefully that works out. I also know that Stephen Brower would like to get in here and, uh, and share a couple of thoughts before the end. So I'm going to go ahead and give you, oh, good. Here we go. Please introduce yourself. Welcome. Okay. Thank you. My name is uh, Ahmed from Iraq. Uh, I would like to thank Mr. Hussein. He uh, always uh, sharing uh, more information about the the agreement or the belt road in, in Facebook. So he uh, give more information and details uh, for Iraqi people to join this uh, project. But uh, my concern about the we have in Iraq we have two two issue. Uh, one of the first one, the uh, Iraqi government, Iraqi government, the previous uh, government and new government, they are uh, looks like they are not clear uh, with the with this project, and they don't uh, have a good progress in the uh, construction of the ports in Basra to be uh, ready for this this uh, big project with the connection with the China. Also, uh, if Mr. Hussein agree with me, the Chinese also they don't officially uh, invite Iraq to uh, to be uh, how to say to be more clear uh, in this project. Okay, if the China uh, select Iraq to be nearest from the Europe for all these uh, products, so they have to be uh, more. Uh, I mean, more clear, uh, we want to, uh, to, they have to uh, inform Iraq uh, government, we have to uh, uh, build this port to be uh, like a belt road to join Europe. I, be, um, I think if they, if they uh, say like that uh, for uh, to be a good agreement with Iraq, 
I think uh, Iraqi people will push the government to join this uh, this falsehood. Uh, this is my this is my concern about Iraqi or uh, Iraq in this in this project. Maybe Mr. Hussein he, he uh, will uh, help me in this. Uh, I think Mr. Hussein he, he always sure. uh, push push, yes, push the Iraqi government and give them more details about this project. To uh, also for new uh, our new parliament, they have to uh, also they have to push uh, Iraqi government to to join this uh, this project. Yes, thank you, Ahmed. Nice. Uh, I will start with the latter question. Uh, by the way, the, we have new uh, in the elections in October. We have now in parliament new young members of parliament who are completely independent. And they got into parliament on the basis of all these demands we are talking about. They are mostly from Basra and others, but other independent people. And I know a few of them personally we are coordinating a lot of work, but now that they are in parliament, they are not, you know, very open about, but they are pushing these ideas from inside parliament, although they are a minority. The thing about if the Chinese have to intervene in the discussion in Iraq and tell the Iraqi government that they should do these things, that's one massive difference between the United States, Europe, and China. China does not force or push anybody to work with it. And China has certain principles. They call them the, the five principles of uh, peaceful coexistence. The most important of them is non-interference in internal affairs of other countries. So what I many angry Iraqi people send me messages say, why is the Chinese embassy in Baghdad so silent? Why don't they react? Why don't they defend their interests? Now, the Chinese embassy and the Chinese government, they respect the Iraqi government as the representative of the Iraqi people. They will not do something which goes against the policy of the government, even if it's not correct. And that's a very important principle for them. In the same way, they don't want anybody to interfere with Chinese policies inside China even if the people outside China deem them to be incorrect policies. So that's a very important principle actually of international law of the United Nations Charter, which people in the West have forgotten. And also people who have been subject to Western colonialism, they think China can replace the United States and come to Iraq and force everybody to build highways, railways, ports, Dams, China will never do that. China is waiting for the Iraqi people and the Iraqi government to come to, come to an agreement to work with China. Otherwise, they will not force anybody. That's one of the big frustrations of people I talk to in Iraq. They say, why the Chinese are not interfering? So that's very important to remember. The Chinese will not force Iraq or the Iraqi government to accept something which the Iraqi people don't want. Uh, the other thing is that, that we have a government in Iraq, both the previous and now the incoming, they don't want to work with the Belt and Road. They don't want to work with China and so on and so forth. My answer to that is there is always a reality. Reality 
at the end will prevail. The reality of the poverty, of the injustice in Iraq, which is one of the big oil exporters in the world, but many of its people are very poor. They don't have electricity. They don't have good schools. They don't have good health care. They are unemployed. The unemployment in Iraq is, in reality, is 40%. That reality will prevail. What we are trying to do in our mobilization is that to pull that frustration in the population and mobilize it to get the people in parliament and government to come back to their senses and start reactivating these agreements with China. One of the things we are saying that if the United States or Germany or Britain or France offers Iraq a similar deal to barter oil, the exchange oil for technology and infrastructure, we should accept it. But Europe and the United States are not interested in building infrastructure in Iraq. They are interested in pushing uh, uh, so-called human rights organizations, women's rights organizations, children's rights organizations, all kinds of things. But they don't want to build infrastructure. They don't want to provide electricity, water, industry. Yes, so, so that reality will prevail. Now, I, am, I will not be responsible if that angry mass of people go back and wage a more violent revolution. I don't support that. I don't call for that. But that's to be expected if the current government is not coming to its senses and do what is correct. Uh, yes, right. But uh, I think, you know, you know, Mr. Hussain, that mentality uh, for uh, uh, politics of Iraqi uh, people. Uh, in government or in the in the parliament, but uh, for example, we have we have a pipeline project uh, from Iraq uh, Iraq to Jordan. So uh, the Jordan government ca came to Iraq and make negotiation and perform uh, all the details about this project. So for for uh, this example for uh, the uh, port of Arsal. I think it's better if the, if the embassy in China, Iraq embassy in China, or here, they uh, do a, a small, small um, session on the uh, session to talking about the, this uh, project to uh, make a more uh, clearly for Iraqi people because, or for the other, other uh, parties in the uh, political parties, because most of the political parties in the parliament, they don't like to join this bill. I know, I know them. They don't like, but some of them, they're trying. So I think if they do some, some sessions in Iraq or in China uh, to invite, uh, Iraq, invite Iraq to join this, I think it's become better for, uh, for government uh, and put the government in the, in the right foot. Yes, there, 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 there is now people uh, in Iraq. I know there are lots of people now who are contacting the Chinese embassy. They are starting to Google Translate messages to Chinese and so on and so on. But tomorrow in Baghdad, for example, there will be a big conference. Uh, uh, it's called the Ishraqat uh, Sustainable Development uh, uh, Institute. And they have invited 
scholars and people, but it's this kind of thing which has to, because this has to become a grassroots movement before it becomes something. Because the people in government, one of the things they don't like about the China agreement is that they will not be able to extract commissions and bribes from the Chinese side. <laughs> That's one of the big objections of people inside Iraq to this agreement, because the Chinese would not pay bribes or commissions to those politicians. The money will not even come into Iraq. The oil money will go into a bank in China, and the Chinese government will give the money to a Chinese company, construction company, which has its accounts in China. So this money will not circulate inside Iraq. And therefore, the Chinese companies will come to Iraq and say, we don't pay bribes, we don't pay commissions, we work, we build things. So, <laughs> so that's one of the things why a lot of people in Iraq who in the past 17 years have been taking the oil money into their pocket are angry about this agreement with China. But I think there will be, in the coming weeks, there will be, because now there's a big mess in the parliament, we don't have a prime minister, we don't have a government, but things will uh, settle. But our object, uh, objective is to get as many people as possible inside Iraq aware of the benefits of these agreements, the benefits of the Belt and Road, and how to build an Iraqi economy which is resilient, which is not a rentier economy, which is a trap. Okay, I'd like to step in for a quick moment. This is very, thank you so much for the, for the dialogue here. Thank you, Ahmed. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome participant here. In fact, I want to share with you and with everyone here that, you know, before we got this started today, Hussein proposed that we consider basically a series of Twitter spaces like this, which we, then we'll put onto YouTube for people to be able to share. Um, and you can also share the recording on Twitter uh, on, the, on the subject of Southwest Asia. Because uh, there is much, much more to discuss. Uh, I mean, even for example, whether it's Syria and um, many, dis you know, actions that and ideas and proposals that uh, that we've made and that Hussein has personally made regarding the development of Syria, uh, the uh, uh, Yemen. We have not spoken about Yemen practically at all. There's much that we can discuss um, in terms of a beautiful future to be created. So I want to point out a couple of quick things. One is I think we should really plan to end this at about 3.05. Uh, so there's much more to discuss that we're not going to get to. Um, I want to point out the tweet that I just featured, which is a but the goal is for us to work together to mobilize youth across the world, especially students. And uh, this is going to be a major event uh, a class and a seminar um, organized by Helga Zaplarouche, the chairwoman of the Schiller Institute. She's going to give a class on Ibn Sina, the, uh, who she describes as a hero of Afghanistan on account of uh, his role in the Islamic Renaissance, his towering role. Uh, and uh, she is going to actually going to be discussing his core ideas. Please invite youth to that. Please uh, come into it if you are, are part of that process or want to join us in recruiting a youth movement, uh, you may very much invited. And at the top of the space, you can see that I feature the link in one of my tweets. 
So I want to make sure that we have a chance to go to Ghoul again, who has her hand raised. I want to see if we can talk to Stephen Brower briefly, who's one of your collaborators, of course, Hussein, and a member of the International LaRouche Movement. And uh, um, our friend uh, Maram Susli in uh, Australia is up at three in the morning. So if you'd like to say anything, you're certainly invited to, but perhaps we'll have another opportunity soon, which we can organize at a better time for everyone. Um, so those are a few things I think we should try to get to. Um, but therefore, everyone, if we could be brief and, uh, and bring it to a conclusion, knowing that we're going to talk again soon. So, um, Gul, would you please go ahead? And thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak again. So this is uh, not on behalf of an Afghan starvation, but on my own concern. So this project that um, uh, Brother Hussein is speaking about is a very good project. The only concern I have is um, most of the countries uh, from Asia, uh, from Afghanistan and uh, towards the east are Muslim majority countries. And we know from what's going on in China, uh, there are news and uh, uh, proof that um, they're prosecuting many Muslims there. So I'm afraid, you know, when we, we this will probably divide the Muslim majority countries who are working on this project because there will be Muslims who will be against it because of their faith, uh, what is happening to the Muslims there. But then there will be others who will, will want their own country to develop. So that was a concern uh, I, 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 that came to my mind. And if you want to elaborate on it, uh, you're welcome. Yes, sure. Yeah. Uh, first, there is no real facts behind the fact that China is prosecuting Muslims. Actually, the Muslims in uh, Xinjiang uh, enjoy more freedom than a lot of Muslim countries. Uh, and they have more mosques in Xinjiang uh, than the most Muslim countries. Uh, remember that there are 30 Muslim nations issued a statement two years ago supporting China's fight against terrorism. Because what China did, there was a real threat of terrorism in, in Xinjiang, in China, not only in Xinjiang, but all over China, from the certain groups, separatist groups. Your 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 comments got interrupted, Hussein. Can you hear me? We can't hear you, Hussein. Um, <laughs> maybe if I remove him as speaker and then invite him again. We'll see if that comes through. I'd like to give him an opportunity to complete his comments. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to remove him entirely from the space to get it to work again. Let's see. Just like we did last time. Okay, we might have to go a little bit longer just so that we can make this work. So I'm going to go ahead and... We invite him, and if everyone would just uh, be patient, that would be appreciated.
And while we're waiting, he, of course, he's talking about something rather, uh, rather important for you to hear in full. But while we're waiting, please take a look at this, um, at the tweets that are at the top of the space. Uh, in particular, if you flip over a little bit, you will find a series of articles written by Hussein that were published in Executive Intelligence Review uh, on uh, one of them titled Iran, Iraq, and uh, the World in This Moment of Crisis from 2020. Another one from January 2020 was written immediately after the assassination of Soleimani. Uh, number two is Lebanon should join the new paradigm of the Belt and Road, but watch out for the war party in which he warned about efforts of the war party to throw Lebanon off of the track of cooperation with China on the Belt and Road. And that was written in July of 2020, immediately before, about, about several weeks before the Beirut bombing. So he uh, forecast that development, that, that tragedy. And, uh, and then you'll also see a um, speech, transcript of a speech given by Lyndon LaRouche in Abu Dhabi, in uh, 2003, in which he laid out his view that uh, of the absolute necessity of the full economic development of Southwest Asia. And uh, that's all right. You were just beginning to, to describe the 30, uh, the, the, the statement issued by the 30 Muslim nations. Yeah, there are nations 30 Muslim then... countries who mm -hmm. supported China's fight against terrorism and China's attempts to stabilize the situation in Xinjiang. So there are only Turkey and Qatar, basically, and all the Western countries who are pushing this thing. There is no problem with the Muslims in, in China. Uh, they are enjoying freedom of religion and they can practice their religion. The only thing the Chinese don't like is separatism and extremism. And this is a, a natural thing uh, for them. So that this is, there, there is no, really no, no truth to what is being alleged about China's treatment of Muslims. Uh, I don't remember the other question. Well, that, um, Go, would you like to, well, in the interest of continuing in, in the time, uh, her, her, let me just restate her comment. We, we, can, we, can, was... we can discuss this in another time. That's an important yeah, uh, that's... issue. I promise you I have studied this Islamic uh, stuff for 30 years. I promise you, like, we can talk about this for three, four hours. Well, let's, um, let's make sure that that is a topic of an upcoming space, because I have found um, exactly that uh, topic coming up, people um, making this presumption about, or I don't mean to say presumption, but people having a misguided and untrue uh, expectation or understanding of the treatment of China, by China of, of Muslims. This is a consistent theme that I've seen among um, members of people who are very much in, interested in stopping, uh, the, in solving the crisis, crisis in Afghanistan. And I, I hope that we can have a full discussion so that uh, your, you know, what you just stated, Hussein, uh, can be developed and demonstrated for people who have questions on this, because I agree with you, it's extremely clear uh, what's being done is an effort that, that people who are pushing the, the claims about 
uh, about Xinjiang, which are false, about you know, Uyghur genocide and so forth, are, in fact, that's part of the same strategy that you see with the attacks on Lebanon, that you see with the, the coups and the assassinations. Yeah. It's the same people who have been killing and bombing Muslim women and children for exactly. 30 years now. <laughs> it's like, it's the like same when people. Ned Price, I, just to say, it's like when Ned Price at the State Department says, you know, we're really concerned about getting humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. It's just completely absurd because there's $10 billion that's frozen from the Afghan Central Bank that is, uh, it's the United States that's doing that. Um, but why don't we move on with the presumption that we're going to have an opportunity to discuss that in depth. And I want to give Stephen Brower a chance to come in with a remark. And if there's one or two more people who would like to, I'm, I'm kind of, I'd like to get to know you better, Adam, before I bring you in, because you seem to have no followers. So, oops, that's not what I meant to do. So I don't really know who you are. Um, but let me find Stephen and invite him to speak. Um, hold on. Hold on. Hello. Hi. Sorry. Um, that was accidental. Where is Stephen? There he is. If Stephen's on his computer, I don't think he'll be able to get the speaker. Oh, that okay. might be what's going on there. Well, we wanted to finish up at three anyway. So, um, Marum, I certainly want to invite you if you'd like to make any uh, brief comment here, or maybe we can plan to do an event together. Um, so you're welcome to, if you'd like to request to speak, you're welcome to speak. But otherwise... Um, Please join us in a future space and uh, please register for these events taking place over this weekend, especially Martin Luther King Day. Okay, here we go. Please go ahead, Maramir. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to speak. She's. Hi, welcome. Hi, sorry about that. Um, yes, we could definitely do something in future. I'd love that. Um, I just wanted to add about the previous comment um, on the treatment of Muslims in Xinjiang province, the Uyghur genocide, that now the US has dropped using the word genocide um, and some of all of the you know, humanitarian NGOs that are mirroring their statements because it, they, they couldn't make it stick um, there's just no evidence of that and it's obvious to me that the whole thing was invented in order to put a spanner in the Belt and Road Initiative and exactly create any, some kind of resistance some um, pan-Islamic resistance towards China based on what's going on there um, and the troubles that started there and its position like the position of Xinjiang province, like right to in towards Afghanistan, you know, it, it makes it just the perfect point to create instability when it comes to, you know, trying to create a barrier between Afghanistan and China. Um, so the game is very obvious there. I think similar stuff is happening in Kazakhstan right now, actually. So I just wanted to point that out. Like, I don't know how much success the U.S. has had is with that because the Taliban is working with China, so I don't think they have, but they're going to still try. So just just wanted to say that. And thank you so much for the discussion. Sorry I came late, and I look forward to the next one. 
this is a, thank you, Madam. This is a whole new discussion. Hopefully, we'll discuss these things. But congratulations to Syria. They signed the agreement to join the to join the Belt and Road Initiative yesterday. Oh, really? I did. I actually didn't know that. So that's that's amazing. I look forward to reconstruction. Yes, yeah, Syrian Chinese uh, relations are very strong, but uh, it turns out that they did not sign that uh, memorandum of understanding until yesterday. I, you know, maybe uh, there was some resistance because there was just so much instability. We didn't know where things were going to go. Yeah. But now things yeah. are more stable. So I look forward to reconstruction. Great. Excellent. Okay. okay. I don't have anything more to say other than thank you very much for this uh, initiative, Daniel, and all these uh, events you mentioned the Shiloh Institute is holding this weekend. It's important for people to follow, and I'm open to future spaces. Uh, there are lots of things we can discuss. Excellent. Okay, I think this is a big success. I had a lot of fun. Um, thank you to everyone for participating. And I'm going to leave up one thing as we just conclude this, which is the link to donate and become a member of the Schiller Institute. And I want to invite everyone to please make a recurring donation. Go ahead, Kate, please. Yeah, and if you do become a member of the Schiller Institute, um, the, the it's just five dollars for the minimum membership to be able to access our uh, Leonora publication, which is a, a cultural and scientific magazine that we we came out with recently. And in the summer edition, uh, Hussein has a wonderful article on the the influence of uh, paper making technology coming from the original Silk Road in China and the effect that had on the uh, Islamic Renaissance. That I'd highly recommend. Here, here, and don't stop at five. Feel free to give more. All right.